0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here with my co-host, Michelle Witty. Get ready to go against the grain. We are glad to have you back on this sunny Washington afternoon, and we have a lot of news for you again today. We're going to talk about Ukraine, of course. We're going to talk about uranium mining, which is Way more important than most people realize. We're going to talk about nuclear safety. And besides that, there are some other interesting stories in the news. We're actually going to spread them out all through the show. There are so many interesting things going on today. First, conservatives seem to be flocking back to Twitter. uh, Now that the company has announced that it will be purchased by billionaire Elon Musk. And many of them have been adding followers. In some cases, tens of thousands of followers a day. At the same time, people like Barack Obama are losing followers. I have no idea what to make of this. I'm not sure anybody really understands why this is happening. But yesterday, Fox News celebrities Tucker Carlson and Mark Levin deleted the tweets that got them suspended, which was only, what, a month or two ago, Mm -hmm. and they were soon back up and in business. We'll see how this plays out. But, you know, it's funny because uh, Elon Musk has not yet bought Twitter. Right. He's not running the company.
1: And of course, the, uh, the other bit of speculation is with Tesla losing a bunch of value yesterday. Oh, does he even right. have the money? Which right. I, you yeah. Know, I don't think that's he's he's got the money. He'll have the money. It's all borrowed money
0: anyway. Yeah. It's all borrowed money. He's borrowing using this this line of credit that he has. That's many, many billions and billions of dollars. He's not he didn't have to, like, cash out his stock. You know, so he could write a check for yeah. Twitter. He's not shaking that piggy bank. No, no, the,
1: This uh, There was more of the same of what, was kind of what we've been talking about, this idea that somehow Elon Elon Musk uh, being exactly the same figure and having exactly the same access as the previous billionaires who who ran Twitter would somehow be much worse. And so you have this New Republic writer, Jacob Silverman, asking a question along this line. Uh, asking what's to stop Musk from tasking an engineer on day one with searching through Twitter DMs, which aren't encrypted or ephemeral, of politicians, journalists and critics. And yeah, what I mean, the same people piped up to say, uh, you know, the there are different regulations that would make that illegal, if not uh, impossible. Right. It is possible. It would still be illegal. But it's just like, yeah. What is to stop him? Nothing. Apparently, there was also nothing to stop the uh, Saudi royal family from planting a bunch of spies within Twitter to collect information in, you know, exactly exactly that way. Allegedly. Right. According to one of our guests. Right. Uh, Ali Ahmed has alleged this on our show and in court. Yes. Yes. This is what has already been underway on the social network. And to be fair to Silverman, he does acknowledge these accusations that Saudi Arabia was able to out dissidents by spying from within Twitter because the Kingdom Holding Company is a major shareholder or, you know, until this takeover uh, will be a major shareholder in the company. But he doesn't have anything to say about why we should be more worried about Elon Musk doing it than other billionaire investors. Right. Or why, you know. We, we shouldn't be worried about Bill Gates doing it or something. And so, again, this is not a defense of Elon Musk, but just to say, what what is, the, what is the actual reason that you are now concerned about this thing that has been a possibility for a long time? And it always seems to come down to an idea that reporters really shouldn't put too much faith in that some teams are good and some teams are bad and some governments are trustworthy and others aren't. You know, I'm not going to say there's not... Differences of degree between some of them. Uh, But skepticism remains a a virtue.
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. You know, I I was just searching uh, for a minute ago and I'm not going to be able to find it. But Renee Upshaw, who um, is is a friend of the the network and is a prominent activist, uh, posted something on Facebook this morning that that made me chuckle, but sort of in a sad, resigned way. Uh, And it was comparing two different headlines from Business Insider, one from the day that uh, Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and the other from the day that Elon Musk bought Twitter. And their headline for when Bezos bought the Post was, oh, my gosh, look at this. Mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos is going to buy the Post. He's going
1: to save the Post.
0: Exactly. Save
1: our failing news industry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then the headline from Musk was, oh, my God, Musk bought Twitter. This is a disaster. The conservatives are taking over. It's the end of free speech as we know it. Well, what's the difference? Yeah. What's the difference between the two of them? There's no difference, at least not as far as, you know, what they've done with their money. You know, Brian Becker makes a good point, too. He, he's got a, a show now, uh, a podcast called The Socialist Program, and he's been talking about this for over a week. Uh, saying that, you know, whether you're on the left or, or on the right, we should all be up in arms over the fact that billionaire oligarchs are taking over all of our modes of communication. Yeah.
1: And this has been underway for some time now.
0: For a very long yeah. time.
1: And again, at, w- at whatever point it, it becomes alarming and you join in the, you know, the, the criticism of it. Terrific. But this has not as as a. Uh, the MSNBC commentator whose name escapes me now. But this is not what has tipped us into oligarchy. Right. Right. And it is if that is what if if this is what is uh, waking you up, then terrific. Right. Well, welcome to the party. Uh, This this is not actually a tipping point. Right.
0: No, you're right. This is not a tipping point. Michelle, uh, in other news, President Biden yesterday, uh, much to the surprise of many, named Michael Ratney as the new U.S. ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Ratney is a career diplomat, having served as special envoy to uh, Syria, charge d'affaires in Jerusalem, that's acting ambassador, uh, and deputy chief of mission in Doha, Qatar. He also served in Baghdad, Beirut, and Casablanca, and he's fluent in Arabic.
1: Wow, certainly sounds like someone with a lot of regional experience.
0: And that is exactly why the Saudis don't want him. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, They don't want him because they have long demanded that the U.S. ambassador be a close friend of the president and or have had a career in military sales.
2: The Saudis
0: don't want diplomats. Hmm. They want somebody who can pick up the telephone and call the president in the middle of the night and say, this is what the Saudis want.
1: Military. So they're not they don't want a Wes Clark. They don't want a Rex Tillerson. That's what I was thinking. No, they do not. Okay. They want a former Raytheon CEO or something.
0: In fact, the last ambassador to Saudi Arabia was the CEO of Raytheon. Uh huh. I yes.
1: mean, I guess if you had given me a multiple choice question and said was the last, I would have guessed that. But I also might have said two on the nose, John.
0: Wow. Yeah. OK. Yeah. If, if Biden's appointment actually is a very good one. If the goal is to ever so slightly downgrade the level of dip- diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia, which is what this administration has been trying to do. Right. We, we've got a we've got a tit for tat going back and forth where y- you remember a few weeks ago we said here on the show that that Biden had tried to call uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and MBS wouldn't take the call. OK, well, you know what? If you're going to if you're going to disrespect the president of the United States like that, there's going to be a little slap that comes back your way. And this is what that little slap is.
1: But again, I mean, all of this is fine, whatever, if you want to keep doing these sort of like uh, subtle, subtle protocol based uh, moves of disrespect or, you know, si- signals of, um, Uh, disgruntlement or whatever yes it is frustrating as an american to watch this happen at the same time the united states is uh is asking saudi arabia to do something to materially benefit the citizens of the united states in the very very short term i would add uh by producing more oil and and giving us some of it or you know selling it to people so we can coerce them to you know not buy from russia And so it's like, it's fun to watch this symbolic stuff when it doesn't affect anything, but it's not satisfying as a response to this, you know. No, you're exactly right.
0: This is one of those times when we're going to have to swallow our pride and go back to the negotiating table. And frankly, if... The sound. or don't
1: or just or actually or blow it up, right? Or just and just walk move away. beyond the, the right.
0: realm of symbolism. Right. I
1: mean, blow it up, you know, and whatever, whatever that you know, means. I, but it's sort of like a weird in between, It feels in between to me,
0: John. Yes, is what I'm saying. Yeah. It is. It's in between. My my very first tour uh, overseas was in Saudi Arabia. I worked for Ambassador Chaz Freeman, who's a an intellectual giant, right? Um, and and Chaz was one of those unusual Americans who, even though he was a career diplomat, was so smart and so highly respected in Washington that he was ok for the Saudis. They would take him, but then, after he left, he went on to become ambassador to china. Uh, there we We had a string of ambassadors who had been you know Governor of Mississippi. He was a friend of bill clinton's um governor of uh, of uh, Alabama. Uh, The former uh, secretary of the Navy, who before that had been at uh, McDonnell Douglas. Mm
1: -hmm. Was it Caroline Kennedy ambassador to
0: Japan? Yeah. And now she's ambassador to like France or something. Something good. Yeah, it's a real good one. Lucky. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Anyway, you've got some. Well, actually, no. I I have one more thing to to say um, before you. We
1: forgot this yesterday. Yeah, we Big did. Day. We forgot
0: this yesterday. Yeah. Stephen Donziger is now a free man. Thank yeah, God. Finally, after nine hundred and ninety three days of arbitrary detention, he is no longer under house arrest. Um, he'd been held as part of this awful Chevron case that we talked about. And he attracted the attention and the support of Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch and the International Committee of the Red Cross and other human rights organizations. He was harassed right up until the last minute. But now he's free. So congratulations, Stephen Donziger.
1: In addition to, uh, you know, obviously all of his work, to uh get some compensation to indigenous farmers in Ecuador yes. and to take a chevron to task uh for people who who hadn't known what house arrest was like it was a really valuable his twitter account was a really valuable uh source of information as to What what that actually is like and what kind of disruptions that actually does uh, create for I mean, obviously, you're supposed to be in detention. But, you know, the calls at at 3 a.m. saying, oh, it seems like you're outside of your house Oh no, you're sleeping. You know, the fact that you have only a short window of time to respond to some of these messages that can come in in the middle of the night. You know, sir, God God forbid you sleep through an alert that comes in at 4 a.m. They'll break down your door. yeah. And so that threat of uh, of harassment, that threat of, you know, having your house violently broken into that threat of being taken back to prison on some kind of charge that you violated the terms of your house arrest, which I think would not, you know, uh, do good things for any sentencing or, or, you know, for any judge viewing your case further down the line. So, yeah, it was it was really enlightening as to that aspect of the yeah. U.S. Uh, carceral system.
0: You know, when I, when I was in uh, uh, under house arrest, it was far worse than being in prison. Far worse, because at least in prison, you can go out to the yard, you can exercise, you can, you know, move around. When you're under house arrest, you are, you are confined to the four walls of your apartment or your house, and you cannot go outside. I mean, not even onto the front stoop To get a breath of fresh air. They will break down the door and they will take you. And then they call you literally 24 hours a day. And you have 30 seconds to get to the phone. So if you're in the shower, you better get out of the shower right quick. Mm -hmm. Because you have 30 seconds or you're going back to jail. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very difficult. Congratulations to him.
1: We'll get into this drone story maybe tomorrow. It's it's sort of a funny little thing. But I think we can save it for later and take a break now and bring on our first guest. So we're going to do just that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you all kinds of good things. (laughs) We bring you news, politics, culture without the red and blue treatment. Every day. Right? Well, the United States and Russia carried out a prisoner exchange today with former Marine Trevor Reed returning to the U.S. and pilot Konstantin Yaroshenko returning to Russia. Reed had been convicted in Russia on charges of being drunk disorderly and for assaulting a police officer. Yaroshenko was imprisoned on drug trafficking conspiracy charges. Another Marine, Paul Whelan, and basketball player Brittany Greiner remain in Russian custody. In other news, Russia this morning cut off gas shipments to Poland and Bulgaria for rejecting its demand for payment in rubles. Poland and Bulgaria wanted to send payment to an escrow account that the Russians would not have access to, which makes zero sense. And Senator Rand Paul, a Kentucky Republican, is taking heat today for saying that the U.S. should not have supported Ukrainian desires to join NATO. In a Senate hearing yesterday, Paul challenged Secretary of State Tony Blinken on the causes of the war, saying that the U.S. knew that Ukrainian-NATO membership was a Russian red line. We're joined by Professor Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University in Washington. He's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books, including The Untold History of the United States and Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. Welcome back, Peter. Hi, John. Michelle. Peter, thanks so much uh, for joining us. We wanted to um, to ask you not necessarily about these specific day-to-day events, but about broader Developments, Uh, for example, uh, Michelle mentioned yesterday on the show that uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Austin had said that the U.S. goal was to weaken Russia and to to degrade its military capabilities in the context of this growing nuclear threat. And that very same day that he said that, Foreign Minister Lavrov said that we are closer to a nuclear war than most people realize. Can you start off by giving your thoughts on these two statements? Is the United States really trying to weaken Russia militarily over the long term? Uh, And if so, uh, to what end? And do you believe that we're close to a nuclear conflict? I
3: think the uh, goal of weakening Russia has been in effect for decades. Uh, This is not really something new. But it and it was reflected in the expansion of NATO to the east, to Russia's doorstep, over many years now. Uh, This this is just the latest escalation. But what's troubling is that the rhetoric has changed so dramatically, just in the past week. Mm -hmm. You look at Austin's statements. You know that uh, in that meeting there with. More than with 40 other countries uh, in Germany, uh, Austin says our focus in the meeting was to talk about those things that would enable us to win the current fight and also build for tomorrow. He talks about we want to see Russia weaken to the degree, to the degree it can't do the kinds of things that is done in invading Ukraine. Uh, seeing Russia weakened in that way is very, very dangerous right now uh William Burns, the CIA director, said that given the potential desperation of President Putin and the Russian leadership, given the setback that they've faced so far militarily, none of us can take lightly the threat posed by a potential resort to tactical nuclear weapons or low-yield nuclear weapons. So effectively, what the U.S. is doing in its attempt to weaken Russia is not to end the fighting in Ukraine. It's to put Russia in a position which we know, as Burns says, could lead to the use of nuclear weapons. So by putting, backing Russia into a corner in this war – The United States is creating conditions that our leaders believe is going to provoke a nuclear war or potentially could provoke a nuclear war. So what kind of madness is our policy now? We didn't do that during the Cold War. Why are we doing it now? And this is not to defend Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm opposed to it in every sense. But there are people in the U.S. who see this as their opportunity to achieve something vis-a-vis Russia, the weakening of Russia, possibly regime change in Russia uh, in a way that they've fantasized about for decades. And so they see this as an opportunity. And while there are many people in the U.S. and in leadership who are honestly, sincerely concerned about the loss of life in Ukraine, And that's noble. And I agree with them on that. There are others who are happy to see or willing to see Ukrainians die if it's going to allow us to achieve our greater geopolitical goal, which is eliminating Russia as a superpower, a major threat. A, a global hegemon or a potential hegemon, uh, which, you know, we can trace this back to 1992 and the defense planning guidance that the neocons came up with then, which was later reflected in the project for a new American century and the neocons who went into the George W. Bush administration. They've had this vision for American dominance that was interfered with by Russia and China and their rise. And now if they could have, eliminate one of those two major adversaries that puts the U.S. in a stronger position and, the, and effectively knocks Russia off the chessboard. But they're willing to gamble with World War III in order to achieve that geopolitical aim. And I don't think the American people are on board with that.
0: Peter, one of the things that I, I'm struggling to understand, and I like to think I'm a relatively intelligent person, uh but what exactly does it mean for for, for US policy to have a, a weakened Russia or to quote unquote defeat Russia how do you defeat a country that has nuclear weapons is physically the largest country in the world um is active in you know international affairs has friends and close relations with many countries around the world, has a very productive relationship with, with China. What does what does defeat of Russia mean to the United States? I, I just don't see it. Well,
3: in a sense, Russia is defeating itself with this policy in Ukraine. The fact that Russia cannot even easily win these fights in the Donbass region uh, or finish the Ukrainian forces off of Mariupol is a reflection of the fact that Russia does not pose a threat to NATO. I mean, after this fighting, the thought that Russia is going to be encouraged to move further against NATO, whether or Moldova or uh, other areas, uh, is really not realistic. We're we're dealing with a false threat right now. What what defeating Russia means, what winning there means, is rolling back the gains uh, in the Donbass maybe retaking the Donbass, somehow insanely believing that Crimea will revert to Ukrainian control. Uh, But I think in a certain sense, Russia's dismal military performance in Ukraine has already achieved the objective that the Americans say that they were aiming for, which is that Russia is not going to be a military threat going forward. I think that uh, Russia has its military has not performed up to expectations, even up to Western expectations, and and so I think Russia's got to do a lot of soul searching. Uh, and thinking about what, what was motivating Russian leaders and, and what they understood and why they took this on. You know, but, but superpowers recover from these defeats. The United States recovered from the defeat in Vietnam. The United States recovered from the defeat in Afghanistan. Russia will recover from this eventually also because it has other allies. It's got allies in China. It's got allies in India. It's got allies in Iran. It's got other allies around the world who are going to make sure that Russia is not defeated in the sense that the Americans would like to see it defeated. But it has already been weakened and any moral authority that Putin had has been severely compromised. But if you, as you guys know, the narrative in the West and the media in the West uh, is, is so lockstep uh, and that anybody who questions this dominant narrative is being denounced as being unpatriotic, un-American, a Putin supporter, you know, a, a Russian apologist. Uh, what we're seeing is not only the crackdown on dissent and freedom of speech and media in Russia, which is happening and is h- ugly, but it's also happening in the United States. There is no dissenting voice. There is no historical context. There is no understanding of what role the United States played in provoking this. And when Rand Paul uh, even says that in uh, the congressional hearings, he gets widely denounced as being a tool of Russia. You know, And I think that it's the failure to understand historical context, the possibility that the United States could have done things to preempt this. The role of the United States did in provoking this, which doesn't in any way justify what Putin did. What he did is horrible and and should be widely condemned and has to be opposed. But the fact that there can't even be an honest discussion in the U.S. of the role the United States played, and the historical context and the background and what's gone on in Ukraine since the since 2004 uh, is a reflection of how weak our own democracy is and how limited our own freedom of the press actually is in the United States.
0: Tell me something: if if the Russians continue to be bogged down uh, in these operations, whether it's in the east of Ukraine or in the south, how long does that last? How long can they afford to be bogged down without, without actually winning and driving out the, uh, the Ukrainians? It seems that, that they, they can't keep this up forever. There has to be some sort of an end to this conflict.
3: Well, I hope it ends today. Right. You know, uh, know, we've got to end this uh, as quickly as possible for humanitarian reasons, as well as for geopolitical reasons. And in terms of the world economy, the global food crisis, the energy crisis, this is in nobody's interest except for the – people in the U.S. who want to reassert American hegemony in the aftermath of Afghanistan and the American debacles around the world, Um, and the um, defense contractors who are making out like bandits in this, and they profit off of every Ukrainian killed and every Russian killed. Uh, But uh, this could go on for years, potentially, especially if... China uh, ramps up its support. China does not want to see Russia degraded further. And China's been very tepid in its support for for Putin and and this war so far. But China has the capability to certainly ramp up support for this. The Russian economy, the latest reports are, has not really suffered to the extent that people thought it would yet. But the longer-term impact of the sanctions is going to be great. We're trying to get computer chips and other things that are essential oh, sure. to carry out this war uh, is very limited. You know, the big producer of those computer chips is Taiwan, so Russia's access is very, very limited. Their ability to resupply the most modern, advanced weapons is going to be limited. Uh, so they could, they could can carry this on at least in the south and the east, for a prolonged period of time. Uh, But it's not in their interest. It's going to degrade their economy. The estimates are that for this year, the Russian GDP is going to drop between 8.5% and 15%. Uh, So that's going to be very, very significant. But what the Russians are able to do now, the Russian leadership, is say not just they have a hard time convincing the Russian people. I think that Ukraine is such an enemy that the Ukrainians are fascist, but they have a much easier time convincing the Russian people that the United States is out to destroy Russia. And the Russians will rally patriotically around resistance to this effort by the U.S. and NATO to undermine, to weaken, to isolate Russia. So I think this could go on for months and possibly even years. I don't want to see it go on for minutes. You know, this this is too dangerous and there's too much innocent blood being shed. And there's got to be a diplomatic solution. And eventually there will be a diplomatic solution. The question is are we going to reach that – can we understand about approximately where that line is going to be and preempt it by getting there now and negotiating that solution or are we going to have to bleed out Russia and Ukraine before we get to that point? I hope it's not the latter.
0: Let's talk about uh, diplomacy uh, in, in a couple of different ways. We saw this China prisoner is
3: dir is a dirty word diplomacy it,
0: it is actually it's a dirty word right now at least um but these negotiations were going on um they were described as um as difficult and prolonged uh to to exchange these two prisoners uh n- neither one of them were terribly high profile. We're not talking about arch spies here. This isn't you know crossing the the bridge at the height of the cold war. Uh, This is a guy who got drunk and slugged a cop, and it's a a Russian who was, you know, apparently entrapped by the DEA, um, and we exchanged them. How does this compare to what used to happen during the Cold War? And are we headed into another period like that where these really are going to be intense and difficult negotiations to exchange prisoners?
3: Well, exchanging prisoners is a lot easier than finding uh, peace in, in uh, Ukraine right yeah, now.
0: which is going to be my uh, follow-up
3: question, actually. <laughs> uh, and we, th- throughout the Cold War, when our relations were very tense, uh, we exchanged prisoners. In 1962, we swapped Rudolf Abel for yes. Francis Gary Powers after the U-2 plane was shot down. Uh, he'd been there for for a couple of years already. But, you know, they were both convicted of spying. And they had that famous exchange on the bridge between West Berlin and Potsdam, you know, the so-called Bridge of Spies. Yes, And we had a lot of prisoner exchanges in the dead of night during the Cold War. So this was not uncommon. Um, but to, to your follow-up question – the, it, it looked for a while like there might be a basis for a negotiated settlement. Zelensky was talking about neutrality and for going NATO joining NATO. Uh, and they weren't going to agree about the Donbass and Crimea, but they could at least stop the fighting. And it looked possible. There were negotiations going on in Turkey that looked promising. I'm reminded of a comment made by the Turkish foreign minister last week. He said, there are those within the NATO member states that want the war to continue. Let the war continue and Russia get weaker. They don't care much about the situation in Ukraine. And that's to me very, very troubling because I I think he's right. That there are people who would rather see this go on because the loss of a few thousand Ukrainian lives to them is a small price to pay for weakening Russia. And and Biden has not mentioned negotiations, diplomacy. Uh, you don't see any push on the part of the United States. All the United States talks about and does is add more and more weapons. Three point seven billion dollars of new arms since February twenty fourth to Ukraine, and it seems to be an unlimited, you know, account that they can draw on. I'd much rather see the U.S. talking diplomacy. I I applaud Gutierrez for going to uh, Moscow and then to Kiev, uh, and I'd like to see more of this. I'd like to see more encouragement of negotiations or pressure on the part of Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi, uh, and, but I think the United States could play a much different role. Uh, you know, uh, the Ukrainians certainly deserve to defend themselves against this invasion, but it's not Ukraine's interest for this to go on any longer. Let, let me not, ask you,
0: not, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Let me ask you about diplomacy, uh, because it seems like right off the bat, we did see these meetings in Istanbul. Uh, they went on for several days. They were quite intense. And then they just ended. And then we saw statements supportive of diplomacy by Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi, and nothing came of those uh, statements. Why is that? And do you think that behind the scenes, there actually are uh, talks between the Russians and the Ukrainians uh, you know, we, we, we saw that so many times in the past where For example, between the Americans and the Cubans, there were no diplomatic relations, but there were secret talks. Between the Americans and the Iranians, there were talks through the Algerians and the Omanis. Are there secret talks, do you think, at this point, or is that something we're going to have to wait for?
3: What changed the discourse at a time when the negotiations looked somewhat promising was Butcher. Uh, As soon as those visuals of the atrocities in Butcha became universal. Uh, The the talk of negotiations ended. The Ukrainians said, how can we negotiate with with butchers who would do, do these kinds of things? The United States encouraged them in their rejection of negotiations at that point, and American public opinion shifted in a way that was totally predictable. It's interesting to me when I go on shows with Russian experts, uh, how much they believe the Russian narrative, uh, and, and which to me is, is somewhat depressing. The Americans believe the American narrative. Ukrainians believe the Ukrainian narrative. And the Russians believe the Russian narrative. And in the, the Russian narrative, Butcher was entirely staged. In the Russian narrative, the war is going great. It's going exactly according to plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are intelligent people. These are informed people I'm talking to. In the U.S., there is no dissent from the view that Ukraine is entirely justified, and the U.S. was justified in building up uh, the Ukrainian military and all the NATO trainers and everything that was going on for those years. Uh And so that sees us being at a real impasse right now. I don't think there's uh, any serious behind-the-scenes negotiation going on at this moment. Uh, I wish, I hope I'm wrong, but I haven't seen any indications of it. And uh, it's got to start. I mean, I don't know what you asked me for about winning. I don't know what winning is going to mean in this context. If winning means putting the Russians into a corner where they're going to be forced to do desperate things, nobody wins. I mean, there's nobody going to be around to even claim victory in a situation like that. So uh, we've got to have cooler heads prevail and begin the process of diplomacy more quickly. But there are obviously people on all sides who don't want to see that. There is no way in which Russia is gonna give back Crimea. That's a done deal. For some reason, which nobody can explain, Khrushchev gave it to Ukraine as an act of largesse in 1954. It had been part of Russia since 1782. So that's off the table. And, you know, and in some ways, when the Russians try to attack entrenched Ukrainian positions, it was much easier for the Ukrainians to defend against the Russian attack. Well, if the Ukrainians think they're going to take back the Donbass, where the Russians' military is entrenched, they're in for a big surprise because that's not going to happen either. And so if we know basically the outlines of what it's going to be, let's get to there now and, and avoid all this unnecessary bloodshed.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there. Thank you to Professor Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University here in Washington. He's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books, including The Untold History of the United States and Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. You're listening to Political Misfits here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back.
1: Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty here with John Kiriakou talking now about a couple of important stories having to do with the sovereignty of Native nations in the U.S. and the effects of mining on Native territory and Native health. And we are joined for both of those stories by Darren Thompson, reporter for Native News Online and Unicorn Riot, joined in the studio for the first time. Yeah, very exciting. Thanks for coming, Darren.
4: Yeah, very excited to be here. Thanks, guys.
1: So let's start with the uh, story that is sort of underway right now, which is uh, a a challenge not necessarily to the McGirt ruling uh, that affirmed that Congress had never disestablished the Creek Reservation or other reservations in eastern Oklahoma, and so therefore made much of the state of Oklahoma technically Indian country, but so it, because the court has declined to hear a direct challenge to that case, as I understand it. And so what it seems like the state of Oklahoma is doing now is trying to figure out whether it has as a state has jurisdiction to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians in Oklahoma. And so they're trying to figure out if they have as a state jurisdiction in about half of the state. Is
4: that what this case is about? Yeah. So the numbers are a little different. I think, you know, it's a little over 40 percent, some people say 41, some people say 43 percent. It's a significant percentage of the state of Oklahoma that they're arguing who has jurisdiction to prosecute, as you've said, crimes committed by non-Indians against Indian on this new, quote unquote, Indian land in eastern Oklahoma.
1: And I also feel like, to be clear, I don't want people to get the impression that, it, that there would just be a free for all, right? Because if if it is not the the state of Oklahoma who has jurisdiction, it would be tribes and also the federal government, right? So Correct. it's not a, it's not as though if it's not the state then it's just n- nobody or it's a system of law that is unfamiliar to people in the United States or anything like that.
4: Correct. So it would major crimes would fall into the jurisdiction of the federal government which is reflective of other communities and other lands throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. And then first minor misdemeanor crimes and some domestic violence-related crimes the tribes can prosecute as they upgrade their criminal justice infrastructure.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you were listening to these oral arguments this morning. What what kind of a case was the state making?
4: Uh, the case was advocating on behalf of Indian victims in this particular case. And, you know, the term Indian in regards to this case is... Uh, a commonly understood term in the way and time that the law was written. And so we understand that that language and that term can seem derogatory to some people. Um, I have no issue with it, but it's a case-by-case basis. But ultimately, the case uh, that is being argued on behalf of the state of Oklahoma is that it wants some type of primagirt status. And so it will never, the the court has quoted, we will never go back to premogurt. We've decided that this particular area belongs to these five tribes in the Quapaw Nation. And so therefore, what they're trying to hope for is that they'll share a jurisdiction. So that could be a concurrent jurisdiction, a subse- subsequential jurisdiction, whatever it is, it'll never be the exclusive jurisdiction that it thought it had since the beginning of the foundation of the state in 1912.
1: If we end up in, a, in some kind of situation of shared jurisdiction, would that have implications for other uh other native nations on other states because you know there there is a lot of uh i mean the 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 status the the way that policing is handled in native nations and the sort of complicated relationship between the federal government tribal governments, and state governments uh is complicated right and and part of what i think leads to a lot of crimes in Indian country not getting as much attention as as other crimes because federal law enforcement is so much less likely to be forthcoming to the public with information about investigations. And so I'm just wondering, you know, does it maybe open a whole can of worms with other states going, well, hey, we want to we want some jurisdiction over over these territories in our states as well?
4: Absolutely. So that will apply to all 50 states in the United here in the country. And that essentially Will be you know so there's a law that was passed uh in the forties called the Public Law Two Eighty, which basically there were five mandatory states where they assumed jurisdiction for criminal manners over Indian perpetrators and or Indian victims, depending on where the crime was committed, but essentially, this refers to again, jurisdiction, and it could apply to other states uh, minus some of these states that already have this public law 280. And it's a national law, but there are some states who don't participate in this. And so uh, essentially what this means, again, is the states will have jurisdiction in some of these crimes. And the argument that many tribes in this particular case are arguing is that the states don't often represent the views of the tribe or the tribal membership, and therefore Uh, They they want their own jurisdiction as well as collaboration between the federal government.
1: Yeah, I mean, and in that light, what do you make of arguments by the state of Oklahoma trying to reclaim some jurisdiction that what their their interest is really in the well-being of of quote unquote Indian victims?
4: Sure. I think that's really interesting. And there's I'm going to quote Cherokee Nation's Attorney General Sarah Hill, who just a couple of days ago mentioned to PBS NewsHour that prior to McGirt the state of Oklahoma has never advocated on the level that it has now on the for the case for Indian victims and so behind all of this as the dust is settling what's really going on and what's really going on is they want the land and the land refers to the oil and gas leases in the forty-three or forty-one percent in the state of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and so the current Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt, who's a member of the Cherokee Nation, has been advocating for mm-hmm. the return of Prima McGirt. And so I just met with Chief Hoskins, a uh, uh, Hoskin uh, from Cherokee Nation, and there's a lot of argument that's going on between the governor and these tribes. And the consensus from the tribes is that the governor has not co- collaborated or is not participating in any type of conversations in regards to jurisdiction or policing or or crimes in Indian country. And so that's them speaking on behalf of their tribal membership. And I think that that's really interesting and also not really interesting. That's my upper Midwest passive aggressiveness. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit more about the yeah the energy in industry and that income as a factor in this case, as you've alluded to? How would uh, how would well, I was going to say, how, how would changing who has jurisdiction over crimes affect that? But of course, the McGirt decision was about much more than that. The McGirt decision said, hey, 40 percent of Oklahoma is actually not the property of the, of the federal U.S. government or the state of Oklahoma. So I'm almost answering my own question, but I wondered if you could give us a little bit more detail about what we're talking about when we talk about this energy income.
4: Sure. So in the the foundation of the Federal Bureau of Investigation was predominantly because there were. Indian women who were targeted by non-Indian members for deeds for their lands because in in the 1910s, 1920s, uh, the discovery of oil oil was being communicated in Indian territory. And so who owned land in Indian territory comes from this act uh, called the Dawes Act, and it separated land in a way that was new to Indian tribes and essentially created a surplus of land. And that surplus of land was then sold to uh, non-tribal members. Uh, But what this refers to with this particular case is that these people have a tremendous contribution and influence in state politics and and it comes from the oil and gas leases and what this could mean and very well could mean is that the tribes therefore can determine on who they are going to give these new oil and gas leases to on their on their territories and so that gives them a tremendous amount of political power in state politics as well as as other politics as well
1: other than um, the governor of Oklahoma not really taking part, can you tell us like what has been the state of uh, negotiations and discussion since McGirt in Oklahoma over? I mean, because of course, it's not like a tornado blew through and the lights went off. And, you know, I I, I don't want to act like nothing has changed on the ground because obviously, you know, there's a court case right now trying to Uh, affect some change. But so what has changed and what has not changed in terms of day-to-day life for the people who live in that chunk of Oklahoma that's no longer under the total control of the state?
4: Sure. So some of the things that have changed is that tribes are now having to increase prosecutors. They have created collaborations and partnerships with local law enforcement, whether that be the cities that they're living in or the counties and or the state. So what the governor... uh, of Oklahoma is communicating is that Oklahoma has, since McGirt, has become a lawless state, and that is not true. And so, for people who don't know or understand tribal sovereignty or tribal history or tribal people, They listen to people who are in positions of leadership like this, and they side often with people in a position like this. And so what the consensus of all the tribes and their leadership are doing is, unfortunately, communicating the correct information to people, but essentially that Oklahoma is not a lawless state. The jurisdiction just changed from either the tribe's or the federal government. And there, there, there is some challenges with the federal government uh, in regards to the infrastructure that it needs to provide to prosecute these crimes. But as, as this time goes forward, uh, these people who are switching jurisdiction, whether or not they've been sentenced by a court or they're awaiting sentences, they're not out in the streets just running amok and running free, as the governor is alluding to. And so the changes really refer to uh, what courts are trying these particular crimes and then also who is considered or who wants to reveal who is an Indian and who is not an Indian in eastern Oklahoma. And ultimately, that will be determined by the courts and by the police. And some of the things that the governor has said is The police are having difficulty in policing eastern Oklahoma because they don't know who has an Indian or not, because you could be one five hundredth or one one thousandth Indian. But ultimately, all you have to do is if you know you're native, you know, you are, you know, you're enrolled in a tribe or not. There's a step that you have to take uh, to to be considered a member of or a citizen of a federally recognized tribe. Right.
1: Right. No, that just seems I mean, the other thing is, it, it also seems like in the short term, What would have happened post McGirt is that there's been a pretty big administrative cost now that uh, that the five tribes have to shoulder when you talk about having to uh, if suddenly a bunch more of low level crimes are in your jurisdiction. As you say, you need more prosecutors, you might need more, more courts, you might need more public defenders, you know, which is not to say this is an impossible hurdle, but it is an interesting, you know, it's a there are there are benefits and there are costs, it would seem.
4: Yes, And so one of the things I can allude to is the recent budget proposal by President Biden. And in his proposal, he is proposing an increased amount from the Department of Justice, particularly to handle the policing and prosecution of crimes in eastern Oklahoma post the McGirt decision. So that, you know, that's those are words right now. Uh, There's you know, some discussion that needs to happen on the floor in regards to how much funding is provided. But ultimately, uh, that is our highest leader in the country right now who understands and supports the McGirt decision. And he went as far as indicating that we need to increase funding for uh, Oklahoma and and other parts throughout the country because I think that this is going to pan out in other parts of the country uh, as this case is closed, Mm -hmm. hopefully before... The summer, mm-hmm.
1: and either way, it seems like any outcome. Since the court has said we are not reversing this decision, that McGirt is settled, uh, any outcome would seem to just require closer and more good faith collaboration between state level authorities and uh, uh, Native authorities.
4: Absolutely, and some of the tribe, all the tribes actually have said we are just waiting for the governor to speak with us. We are more than willing to speak to make this all work for all Oklahomans. But this is about tribal sovereignty and the law is the law in that Congress never disestablished our exterior boundaries or the reservations.
1: Which could, if you want to be optimistic, Oklahoma could have the potential to be a model of how to work more closely and over bigger areas in a, in a positive way that benefits everybody if the state chose to be. The current governor doesn't necessarily seem to be choosing that path, but, uh, you know, the opportunity is there nonetheless, it would seem. I also want to talk to you, Darren, we'll start this conversation and then continue it after our break. But I wanted to start, I wanted to talk about your story uh, from earlier this week about the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission traveling to Church Rock on the Navajo Nation by invitation uh, to discuss the impacts of uranium mining on the community there. And in your story, you write, NRC officials heard for the first time in history of the health and environmental impacts caused by uranium mining on the Navajo Nation. That was incredible to me because, as you know, the mining began in 1944. It continued for more than 40 years. I myself have read articles about the effects this mining has had on Navajo people and on the Navajo Nation for, for years. And so it was shocking to me to learn that this is the first time it has been formally aired to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission.
4: Yeah, it is shocking. And according to some of the people who testified that this was the first time that this agency has traveled to hear firsthand, and it was historic in representation and participation because you had the Navajo Nation president, you had other leadership that were there. And so... That is indicative of, one, an important meeting, but, but two, that it was an issue that has been affecting many tribal members. And according to the Navajo Water uh, Source, it's a nonprofit organization on the reservation. Up to 30% of people that live on the Navajo Nation, which is the country's largest reservation, do not have running water. And so I don't know if that includes water that's contaminated. mm mm-hmm or if it's just not running also because it comes from a source of contamination. Mm -hmm. I don't know that deep into it, but uh, uranium contamination has been pretty well documented among the Navajo Nation and other tribes. Uh, There's a law firm, a law organization called the New Mexico Environmental Law Center who is advocating for the proper cleanup of the more than 500 abandoned uranium mines that exist today on the Navajo reservation.
1: Which would have been abandoned, I think, since 1986, right? So yes. you're talking about decades and decades or, of this just sort of languishing there. Can I ask, what, what was the scope of the meeting, right? What, what, were they, the, what was the NRC invited to do? Uh, what was their interest in going out there? Is the Navajo Nation, are they asking for anything in particular?
4: The purpose of the meeting was twofold. Uh, one, to hear firsthand from families. Uh, I, to my knowledge, there were 20 people who testified at this meeting who were all living in the area. Church Rock is about 20 miles north the, northeast of Gallup, New Mexico, so it's in the northeastern corner of the state of New Mexico. Uh, and second, they heard uh, they wanted to discuss uh, what they call the 2020 to 2029 plan, which is essentially... A, like a time period of of how they want to clean up the reservation how they want to clean up these uranium mines, and so that includes uh legislation unfortunately it could um to allocate funding to clean up these mines who are harming harming some of these people mm- hmm mm-hmm.
1: We're going to uh, take a quick break here. We're going to come back and continue this conversation because I want to get more into I I want to ask you to describe for us, you know, uh, what exactly the legacy of this uranium mining has been and the implications that that has for public health and Navajo Nation and beyond. But we're going to do that after this break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty here with John Kiriakou and also joined by Darren Thompson, reporter for Native News Online and Unicorn Riot. We've been talking about uh, the narrow challenge to some aspects of McGirt, the Supreme Court trying to decide what jurisdiction, if any, Oklahoma state authorities have over the 40% of the state that the McGirt decision decided was Indian country. We are also talking about the legacy of uranium mining uh, in Navajo nation and what it means to finally, for the first time have representatives of the U S nuclear regulatory commission traveling to Navajo nation to hear about this, uh, these repercussions. So I wonder if you could remind us what some of the, what some of the, um, health impact and landscape uh, impacts have been of this history of uranium mining?
4: Sure. So health impacts imply to people with uh, increased members of the tribe having cancer, being diagnosed with uh, various cancer, uh, particularly kidney, which is one of the indicating factors of exposure to uranium. Uh, In addition to that, the environment and or landscape uh, impacts are that the soil, water, and air are also polluted air because it's really windy down there and the soil uh, is pretty much just mounded. There's mounds of soil that gets blown in the air that is contaminated with uranium. And so this meeting that took place uh, last uh, two Fridays ago, well, last Friday, was uh, to showcase that it's windy and that the dust that's hitting... Because it was an outdoor meeting that had basically plastic tarps up, mm-hmm. uh, it, that took place over several hours. That one, it's windy, and two, the the soil and or dust that's hitting this that is hitting this tarp or this meeting location comes from these uranium mines. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, that the water that is in this particular community now, mind you, it, it's in the southwest. It's not Phoenix Valley, but it's in the plateau. It's considered desert. Mm-hmm. Water is scarce and water is a very special resource uh, to the to this community. And what little water is there is considered to be contaminated. And the meeting was to discuss with the EPA. So according to the EPA, it doesn't have the ability or the capacity to clean up all 500 plus mines that still are remaining on the Navajo reservation. So there needs to be other agencies or other resources that are pulled together to basically clean this up. So this is a basic, I think, human rights issue. Um, You know, this community had resources extracted and these resources that were extracted are linked to, if people are contaminated to it, linked to cancer and other health diagnoses. And as a result of that... They basically want clean air, clean water, clean soil. They want to be able to thrive. And they believe that from the World War II era, in addition to contributing the use of their language to the Navajo Code Talkers, as well as the use of their land, that. They, again, just want basic human rights of having a clean environment to live in.
1: And so they're, the Navajo Nation is basically saying, OK, if the EPA doesn't have enough money to clean up all of these uh, mines, maybe you can find some more. <laughs> you know, you go yeah. back and say, like, where, OK, maybe yeah, they don't, but like yeah. this is not our responsibility. You guys you guys pulled this out of the ground. I want to talk about um, also if you can remember any of the um, some of the terms of these mining contracts, because, you know, in a lot of cases, When you talk about uh, subsoil resources on native land, you're talking about contracts that are either, um, you know, a fraction of the actual value of the resources or that are uh, supposed to be managed by the federal government and really uh, criminally mismanaged and neglected so that they don't yield the kind of resources they ought to yield. Can you tell us anything about what Navajo Nation got at the time for allowing some of this mining on their territory?
4: That's a good question. I actually don't know the answers in regards to, you know, financial resources mm. or, or or anything like that. My assumption is that the United States in used eminent domain because mm. it's an energy resource in a wartime era. So 1944 through 1986 was the Cold War era, and they were just abandoned after the Cold War. Like, they just literally just backed up and left. Mm-hmm. So I'm assuming... Uh, And this could be false, but we can look into it. Eminent domain has been practiced among many tribes uh, for for many years. You can look at damming of rivers. Mm -hmm. You can look at the extraction of timber or the extraction of uranium or or oil Mm -hmm. in regards to uh, the building of oil pipelines in protected or or significant areas that tribes uh, consider Mm -hmm. as such.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I also want to ask just about uh, public health infrastructure on uh, in tribal nations in general and in Navajo Nation in particular, to the extent that you know it. I mean, uh, Navajo Nation uh, actually earned itself some headlines for its uh, incredibly rapid and comprehensive vaccination program early on in the pandemic. But I wanted to talk about or ask you to to tell us a little bit about the responsibility of the federal government when it comes to public health infrastructure on uh, if, among native tribes, right? Uh, because, and I think what I'm kind of getting at here is the, the restriction on tribes' abilities to raise revenue themselves. And so the net money, if you're not allowed to raise money, if you're not allowed to levy taxes on your citizens and that money has got to come from somewhere, which makes the federal government, I think,
4: pretty responsible. Yes. So the, yeah, you are very correct in, in that analogy. So how American Indian tribal members receive their health care in indian country is through the arm of the indian health service which is under the depart or the yeah the department of health and human services and also in partnership with the bureau of indian affairs and so the bureau of indian affairs is under the department of interior but ultimately the indian health service has been grossly mismanaged and underfunded since its inception and some indicators of that are the average life Expectancy of American Indian males is under the age of fifty. Uh, the sterilization rate in the 1970s was significant for Native women, whereas that means Native women would give birth in IHS facilities and would leave sterilized or unable to produce further children, and that affects you know a generation two and further on. Uh, but the the way that healthcare is delivered is predominantly reactive. So people are coming to receive their health care when it's when they already have symptoms or when they're sick or when they're ill. So it's not focused on preventative. And that is uh, a shift that I think a lot of leaders are taking throughout Indian country. And so by the time that Indians are receiving their health care, oftentimes it is too late. So that is... uh, a cultural thing uh, that could be indicative of people not trusting their IHS service. They don't want to go there. It's too far. Uh, many of these communities are very rural. They don't have, like you said, uh, large tax levies where they have income coming in, where they have private health care providers in their communities. And often people leave these communities to seek health care for, for other reasons, for you know, specialty reasons or or some significant ailment
1: well it'd be interesting to see what comes of this meeting between the navajo nation and the u.s nuclear regulatory commission also interesting to see what comes of this uh, case before the supreme court so i'm sure we will talk to you about both of these topics again soon that was darren thompson reporter for native news online and unicorn riot thanks for joining us darren thank you all very much we're going to take a quick break here and come right back on political misfits we're live in dc we're on radio sputnik we'll talk to you in a minute Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Woody here with John Kiriakou, and it's a very appropriate, as we were just talking about mining uranium, that we are now going to talk a little bit more about nuclear energy and the, the possible impetus that the war in Ukraine and the climate crisis could be creating for a, a new surge in nuclear energy projects. We're going to talk to our next guest, Kevin Camps, Radioactive Waste Watchdog at Beyond Nuclear and Radioactive Waste Specialist at Beyond Nuclear, uh, about this impetus and what the impact could be. Kevin, thank you for joining us.
5: Glad to be here. Thank you.
1: So, um, as I said, there is a little bit more news about nuclear energy these days. And I think part of the reason is you have Europe uh, looking to find other sources of energy than fossil fuels that come from Russia. And you also have a, a climate crisis that is feeling uh, increasingly urgent uh, and people are looking for, you know, renewable energy sources that can create a lot of energy, the amount that we need. Nuclear energy advocates, of course, are saying if you don't want the political headaches of buying oil and gas from trade partners who could be enemies next year, if you're pressured by your population to cut fossil fuel emissions, we've got a solution for you. And Kevin, I, I I know that you do not think that this is uh, the solution. So I wanted to ask if you if you think that this is uh, for the moment all talk, or there is a chance that we see an upswing in countries that are either expanding existing nuclear energy programs or establishing new ones.
5: Well, it's quite an honor to come on after your previous guest, and I think you know your conversation put a finger on it. Mm. It is chatter. The nuclear industry is infamous for throwing spaghetti against the wall to see what might stick have limitless resources. And one of our phrases is spinning the splitting of the atom. So that important question you just discussed with your previous guest was, where does the uranium come from? Mm -hmm. A top example in Europe is going to be France, which has 50 plus reactors, still gets a majority of its electricity from nuclear power. Where does its uranium come from? Since it tapped out its own domestic uranium supply a long time ago and left a huge mess in France, by the way, doing so. Well, it comes from Niger, West Africa, which is this dystopian, neo-colonial situation where the French government and the French nuclear power industry dominate that country. They have a friend in the dictatorship there. It gets so bad that Arriva of France, now called Orano, because they have to change their name every decade or two because they have such a bad reputation internationally, is uh, this quote is from an Arriva spokesman some years back when there was an uprising in Niger uh, by the Tuareg nomads against the Niger government because their oases were drying up, why were their oases drying up? Because the uranium mining industry, which was French, in Niger, was draining all the water for uranium mining. And this Areva spokesman said, we should just wipe them out. Let's just wipe out the Tuareg nomads. That would solve that problem. So, you know, the first question to ask when someone advocates nuclear power is, where's the uranium to come from?
1: I think that's an important point, because I think we we have an idea that nuclear power, okay, it's created in the nuclear uh, reactor, and that's in this sort of big, complicated facility, and dangerous, possibly dangerous things go on there, but it's all contained there, and we forget that there is still this sort of very traditional old school, dirty mining operation that is absolutely necessary to for providing the components of this energy. Yeah, I, I do think that is something that is often missed in these discussions. And so I'm glad that you that you bring it up. So you don't you don't think that we are going to see uh, countries begin exploring the possibility of reviving nuclear programs to deal with an energy crisis?
5: Well, um Unfortunately, there are examples like in Belgium. Incredibly, the Green Party of Belgium mm-hmm. along with this extension of nuclear power at dangerously old reactors in Belgium.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And I think they should be forced to renounce their calling themselves green because a founding principle of the Green Party in Australia, where it began, in, Fran- in uh, Germany, where it really took off even to this day, is anti-nuclear power. So you can't be green and be pro-nuclear power, and I can see they're going to say the reactors exist, we're just going to extend their operations a few more years. Well, the thing is, these reactors in Belgium are highly embrittled. It had to do with bad forgings in the first place, and there have been excellent reports by Greenpeace International about how degraded these reactor pressure vessels are. And if you lose the vessel... You better hope your containment holds, but it sure didn't hold at Fukushima. You're mm-hmm. looking at, you know, radiological radioactive catastrophes, and they're risking that now in Belgium. Mm-hmm. Old reactors and the reactors across the world are old. There's a very small number of new reactors in this in this world. The old reactors are at huge increased risks of breakdown phase disasters. Mm-hmm.
1: I think part of the reason that there are so many old reactors in operation must be that new reactors are so, so many new reactors are so far behind schedule. And I wanted to ask you why that is. The New York Times was writing about this this week, sort of uh, touching on some of these very questions. Is nuclear energy a a plausible alternative to fossil fuels? And it pointed out that a couple of Europe's newest nuclear reactors have been decades or more late in their completion. Also, they have been much, much more expensive than they were uh, originally intended to be. Why? Why are these projects taking so much longer than the people who envision them have planned? Is it because of political resistance? Is it because of, uh, you know, technological problems that people run into? Is it just unrealistic? Why are these projects so delayed?
5: Those are the first two non-starters for nuclear being a climate solution. It Mm -hmm. takes too long and it costs too much. And the reason is that, for one thing, the industry is incompetent. So they pretty much custom-build reactors. Who cares what the designs are? They're going to diverge from the designs. And then they screw up. That's what happened in Finland with Okiluoto, unit number three, supposed to come online in 2009. That was 13 years ago, 13 years behind schedule. But we have similar examples here in the United States. Uh, Vogel units three and four in Georgia were supposed to be online. I believe it was 2017, 2018. They're not online. They keep extending, and the price tag went from Nuclear Energy Institute's 2001 estimate of $2.5 billion per new reactor to, by 2012, it was now going to be $7.5 billion per new reactor. And you know what it is now? It's double that. It's $15 billion per new reactor in Georgia, and uh, that's not even the worst of it. They might operate. They might generate electricity. We hope they won't. But in South Carolina, just up the road, two reactors were canceled, half built, at a cost to South Carolina ratepayers, many of whom are low-income African-American families. Uh, $11 billion lost. The CEO of the nuclear utility is going to go to prison, at least some accountability, hmm. for securities fraud. Because they lied about how the project was going for not months, but years on end.
1: I mean, that is a dangerous—it's it's, one—I mean, I was— going to say it's it's one thing uh, to do some back of the neck and calculations on on some projects where the consequences are not as dire as uh, if you make a mistake with your nuclear reactor but still that is that is pretty well i mean the other thing is i don't think any of us would want to see a a rush to complete nuclear energy projects because kevin we've talked to you on this show before about the way uh nuclear waste is the sort of um slipshod way nuclear waste is treated. Sometimes it's sort of carted by train around the country, very exposed, not necessarily particularly secure. So, you know, I think projects taking a long time and ending up over budget, if the alternative is, is rushing them to completion, I don't think that's much of a, of a positive alternative.
5: Well, you know, it's so ironic, this so-called nuclear renaissance, which is a relapse in the midst of the Ukrainian invasion, because guess what happened on day one of the Ukrainian invasion? Right. The Russian military occupied Chernobyl, made a huge mess, and may have radio, uh, caused acute radiation poisoning of hundreds of its own troops because they didn't even know where they were. Mm-hmm. Then. And then, just to, you know... Exceed themselves yet again. They militarily attacked the largest nuclear power plant in Europe at Zaporizhia in the south of Ukraine. And we dodged a bullet because there were fires at the plant. They shelled safety significant areas of the plant. They were told, the Russian military, by their superiors, take the plant at all costs. That's a quote from Zelensky, who said that that was the orders they were under. And we dodged a bullet. And it, don't take it from me, take it from the director of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Who was freaking out in public about what was going on at the time, which is kind of out of character because the IAEA is so pro nuclear power. So it must have been really bad. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. Actually, speaking of the IAEA, this is something that I meant to discuss with you and I, I kind of forgot about it, but they are having their their first meeting. Uh, to talk about a a new sort of nuclear regulatory framework, as I understand it. And I wanted to ask if uh, if you know of anything that has come out of that meeting so far.
5: I don't. It's very alarming. There was a similar meeting held in the United States in the mid-1950s that led to the development of the Price-Anderson Act, Mm -hmm. which is the Nuclear Liability Compensation Program. And that's one of the issues they'll be discussing at the IAEA event as we speak. As I mentioned, it's very pro-nuclear. What they're trying to do is to get the laws in place that will allow nuclear to spread around the world, one consequence of which could well be the proliferation of nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. uranium enrichment or plutonium reprocessing. So I'm I'm actually very alarmed about this gathering of the IAEA, and they didn't invite us.
2: (laughs)
1: No, yeah, they're they're looking at the current nuclear law framework in the changing landscape of technology, oppor- technology opportunities and challenges, and charting a, a vision for the future of nuclear law. And of course, yeah, I mean, I I am thinking of the uh, trade organization meetings that happen that do this, and what you know, the the frameworks that seem to come out of these meetings always uh, seem to end up benefiting wealthy countries and exploiting poorer ones. And so you have to wonder if we're going to see some kind of uh, You know, a a nuclear TPP is not something that I would like to see in my future, Kevin.
5: Yes, well, you know what the U.S. Department of Energy is doing as we speak. They've just announced that they will begin to try to provide financial incentives for such communities as Native American reservations to consider hosting high-level radioactive waste on their reservations in exchange for funding, for jobs, for infrastructure development, And that's, you know, going to be made ever more legal at a place like the IAEA for indigenous peoples to again be exploited for uranium mining, for high-level radioactive waste dumping. And the United States leads these efforts. The U.S. really sets the model that the IAEA often then tries to replicate internationally.
1: Kevin, that is so shameful. So I mean, I my I was gonna joke as you say for you know hosting nuclear waste like the waste that isn't already there on reservations already as we were just talking about with Darren Thompson earlier. Wow. That is that is astonishing. Right. I I, I don't have words, actually, for uh, for how shameful that would be to say, OK, hey, how about you take some more of our garbage and in return we'll give you. It also is like this is what this is what they say about any energy project, any extractive project. Oh, it's going to bring you it's going to bring local jobs. It's going to, you know, inject some cash into the community. But it really rarely does. And now you're talking about something that is uh, even more dangerous than uh, setting up, a, you know, an oil rig on your territory.
5: You know, what's so ghoulish is the DOE said 25 years ago, oh, Native Americans are the perfect people to safeguard this stuff because of their Earth-based spirituality. And uh. they got immediate backlash from Native American environmental activists for saying that.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: And compare uranium to high-level radioactive waste. The latter is a million times more radioactive.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Uranium is bad enough. You just heard about it with your previous guest. Mm-hmm. A million times worse is the high-level radioactive waste.
1: I had the idea of just pushing this off onto onto Native territory once again. Wow. All right, Kevin, I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much. We'll see what comes out of this IAEA uh, meeting and if there is more for us to chew on in the future. That was Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear. Thank you so much for joining us, Kevin. Thanks, Michelle. We're going to get into a little bit of uh, nuclear politics here right now. Somebody, somebody, somebody <laughs> right. appearing to be increasingly toxic to his party.
0: Yes. John, who who am I talking about? Well, you know, I just love talking about Madison Cawthorn. We do. We love it, folks. I do. He's a caricature <laughs> is, is really why I so enjoy this. We've talked a lot about Madison Cawthorn, the arch conservative Republican from Western North Carolina who claims to be an evangelical Christian, he claims to be a Trump Republican, and then he lives his life in a way that tends to embarrass him and his Republican colleagues. He may have pushed the Republican leadership a little too far a few weeks ago when he told a podcaster that he had been invited to cocaine-fueled orgies since he arrived in Washington. House Republicans were livid, as you might recall, complaining to Republican leader Kevin McCarthy that Cawthorn had to be reined in. In the meantime, Cawthorn drew a credible Republican primary opponent that would be a state senator from the district who has lots of money, most of which he's spending on advertising. Well, in just the last week, uh, photographs of Cawthorn smoking a cigarette and wearing women's lingerie mm-hmm. uh, have surfaced. I couldn't help but myself but to tweet it. hmm.
1: Uh-huh. I mean, honestly, the least the, the probably the coolest thing Madison Cawthorn has done, <laughs> in my opinion, like the least of defa- I'm sure that it like Republican, the Republican leadership are sort of raising their eyebrows at it. But whatever yeah. like, that it, it, honestly,
0: absolutely meaningless. He blamed the left, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Uh, And said that the photo was taken at a harmless college party, which it was. Sure, yeah. It was. I
1: don't know if I should blame the left for that. I think that's not the left's fault. No.
0: Yesterday, though, Cawthorn was arrested at Charlotte Airport with a loaded nine millimeter handgun in his carry on luggage. That's bad enough. But that's the second time in two years that he's been arrested at the airport for trying to board a plane with a gun. Plus, he goes on trial next month for driving on a revoked driver's license, not a suspended driver's license, mm-hmm. but a revoked driver's license, that's actually kind of a semi-serious crime, right? That that carries jail time with it. He's had no comment on why this license was revoked in the first place or why he was driving with a revoked license. He had been arrested also a year ago for driving on the same revoked license. And today, the Washington Examiner, a conservative newspaper, says that Cawthorne may have violated insider trading laws when he hyped an alleged pump and dump cryptocurrency scheme. A spokesman for the Project on Government Oversight, Pogo, that's a D.C. watchdog group, said simply, quote, this looks really, really bad, unquote. If Madison Cawthorn
1: is the only member of Congress in the last couple of years to go down for insider trading. Seriously. I can't. If he's the only one, then you know this was just, a, yeah. this was a setup. Yeah. Not that he didn't do yeah, it. Yeah, they pushed but him that out. They pushed him out. Yeah, yes. if he ends up being the only one and then all of those old ghouls yes. get to turn and point their finger at this young idiot who, yep. you know, is who I dislike strongly and disagree with on many things, but is also what? How old is he? Twenty, 25? twenty-five. Yeah. yeah, 25 is the youngest oh, look, member of Congress. Here's the big villain of congressional insider training, uh, trading, this one term, uh, you know.
0: Yeah, this kid. Political wonder kid. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's going to be, that's going to make me madder possibly than anything Madison Cawthorn has yet to I do. I
0: completely agree. You know, if if it's insider trading that does him in, mm-hmm. then we really seriously have to look at how it was that the likes of Nancy Pelosi, and Dianne Feinstein and that woman who was a senator from Georgia whose name escapes me now, mm-hmm. who's married to the head of the Nasdaq, mm-hmm. how they all survived their own insider trading Is that Bobert?
1: Lauren no, Bobert. No, she's no, from no, no. Colorado. I yep, yep. I, I can't remember her name either. Yeah, I mean the other question is if, if this is the Republican Party, uh, you know, kind of setting him up to to get rid of him. Why are they keeping the other the, the other aspects of the clown show? Why, why is the right. rest of the clown show wing still around? Bobert, well, that's a uh, legitimate Marjorie question. Taylor, Green, Green. Yeah. yeah,
0: And and I think it's because as offensive as they are, um, they haven't embarrassed their colleagues by saying, you know, that that they had invited them to coke fueled orgies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, how many times do does Kevin McCarthy have to pull this guy into a room and say. Cut it out. Yeah. Right? And he just. I mean, he does also give every impression of
1: someone who simply thinks that the, the rules should not apply to him. Yes. You know, multiple times Without having a, a loaded gun in your in your luggage right. and t- driving on a revoked license over and over. You just think. You just either think you won't get caught yeah. or you think the uh, don't you know who I am
0: exactly. defense is going to work in know the moment. Who I am?
1: And I think that, that just sort of personally rubs people the wrong way. Maybe, maybe just nobody likes them.
0: Yeah. There's I also another story
1: um, that probably warrants a little bit more discussion. And mm-hmm. so we'll try to get someone in on this. But uh, a wild story out of the L.A. County Sheriff's Office which we have discussed on this show already. Last year, there was a huge report from Knock LA detailing the presence of active gangs in the sheriff department. Dozens of officers spanning decades. Um, sheriff Alex Villanueva has also come up on this show a few times uh, for refusing to release the names of officers who'd killed people in the line of duty for allegedly allowing Proud Boys to commit violence during protests, et cetera, et cetera. He's an odd character He sort of ran as a Bernie crat. And he's right. now the darling of the, the exact uh, opposite. California right. Yes, that's right. This week, he is in the news for suggesting uh, that he his department was uh, investigating an L.A. Times reporter yeah. who wrote about a video that was leaked to her depicting brutality within the system. It was a sheriff's deputy kneeling on the head of a handcuffed man inside a jail. Right. For for three minutes. So someone gave her this video and she wrote a story about it because it was newsworthy. Villanueva is angry about how the video came to be in the hands of the reporter. And so he held a press conference yesterday and put up her name and her picture and said it was very interesting because I don't think at any point in the press conference he came out and said yes, we are investigating a reporter. But what he did was list a bunch of possible crimes that could have been committed in the process of this video getting from uh, the inside of the department to this L.A. Times reporter. And then when he was asked, um, saying they were look- the department is looking into it, he said the matter was under investigation, right? So coming very, very close, playing a very... Uh, Funny little game with this idea that you are actually going to investigate a reporter. And that is exactly what it is. Right. And so the L.A. Times and other local news organizations and reporters were, of course, outraged. The L.A. Times uh, wrote an editorial saying this is uh, this outrageous assertion is a thinly veiled attempt to intimidate the reporter. Um, And if the sheriff's department actually initiated an investigation, it would contravene well-established constitutional law which bars prosecutions of news reporters for publishing information from confidential official records, including leaked videos. So Villanueva came out uh, earlier today and said there had been a frenzy of misinformation and he never said he was investigating a reporter and his department would never. They would merely put her face and her name up uh, like a mugshot in front of a press conference and say many, many crimes appear to have been committed in the course of this. And we are looking into the matter. Yeah. I mean, obviously an attempt at intimidation, Mm -hmm. which I think um, reporters in in Southern California would say is pretty much par for the course, but LA County Sheriff's department really does seem pretty out of control.
0: You know, this is an outrage. And one of our, one of our listeners is saying that, uh, that this is the third time he thinks that, that this has happened. He lives in, in, the, uh, in the area mm-hmm. and he says all this won't matter to, uh, to his constituents. Trust me, I yeah. live here. No. You know, that's the real shame here is because this doesn't inspire outrage in enough people. Mm-hmm. We should all be outraged by this.
1: No, if you have a, yeah, I mean, again, if you, you have a, a sheriff Who has a pattern of protecting officers that Mm -hmm. have done, you know, like there were protests out in front of the department of people who simply wanted to know the name of the officer who had killed their loved one, right, in the course of duty, whether or not it was, uh, you know, an accident or something that was being uh, considered as a as a a crime, perhaps committed Mm -hmm. by the officer, but yeah, as a as a pattern of protecting officers who are intimidating the community, yeah, to come out and be. Uh, you know, naming reporters and and suggesting that they'd committed crimes and they were being investigated. Yeah, it's obviously just a way to say stay out of our right. stay out of our business. And That's again, right. when you consider that the sheriff is uh, the head of a department that is infested with gangs, mm-hmm. it is basically like having the head of a gang say, yeah, right. "Watch your watch what you do."
0: That's right. We're watching you. You don't want to make us angry.
1: Yeah. And so this reporter, I don't want to not name uh, the reporter. She was uh, Aline Cechmedian, uh who would, who. Would, published this piece, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised. And of course, we there's a lot said about the what does and does not have a chilling effect
0: outrageous. on reporting.
1: And this would certainly seem to uh, be something that would. It so, yeah,
0: absolutely would.
1: We'll see if we can talk to someone uh, in Southern California just about, about give a little update on Villanueva and <laughs> the kind of department he's running. That's right. But that'll have to be later in the week. We're going to take a quick break right now. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Whitty here with John Kiriakou, and we're continuing uh, our look at the mysterious rash of deaths at the U.S. Army base Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, the reporter who has been most gotten most deeply into this story, uh, Seth Harp, said he was a a day away from submitting a FOIA request to the U.S. uh, government to start releasing data about deaths in 2021 when Mm -hmm. they started slowly, slowly releasing some of that data. But there's still big holes in the casualty lists from Fort Bragg. And just to update you on where we are now, as of the middle of this month, there were 101 confirmed stateside deaths since the start of 2020. Active-duty soldiers were dying at a rate of one per week in January 2022. There were two more deaths from undetermined causes. There, of course, are more casualty reports to come. And again, these are a bunch of very strange deaths. Uh, A lot of homicides, 21 suicides at Fort Bragg in 2020, more than at any other military post. Uh, A number of soldiers dying of natural causes in their beds, including one who was sick enough to go to the hospital two days in a row and then inexplicably sort of left unchecked in his uh, barracks uh, where he was found dead five days later, having been dead for days. His family, uh, this is Caleb Smithers, his family wants to know why no one was there to check on him. And every time we talk about this story, John, we, we don't come up with a, a specific villain, right? But we come up with a lot of, uh, quite a lot of uh, smoke Suggesting quite a lot of fire in terms of a a problem with the culture on these bases, a problem with the culture of of, of permission, a culture of accountability. And so we have now three guests who we uh, are hoping can speak to some of what they hear about that culture. We're joined by three guests now from Quaker House, which is located in Fayetteville, North Carolina, very near Fort Bragg. Uh, we have Kurt Terrell, who is an educator by profession. He has served on the Quaker House board for 12 years. We're also joined by Lenore Yarger and Steve Wolford, who have spent the last 21 years as resource counselor for Quaker House and the GI Rights Hotline, where they help conscientious objectors and others who are having issues with military service. So thank you all for joining us. Oh,
6: th- thank you for having us.
1: Mm-hmm. Kurt, I-, I want to start with you. Uh, as I said, uh, There was a scandal at Fort Hood a couple of years ago that resulted in some leadership changes. But again, it wasn't necessarily that a single individual was doing something wrong. There is simply, it seems, a a problem in the culture of our armed services. And I wanted to ask uh, what impression you get of what might be going on at Fort Bragg that is causing these terrible casualties?
6: Oh, um, um, I I can't answer specifically what might be happening at, at Fort Bragg. Um You know, in terms of our experience at Quaker House, uh, generally over the last fifty years, um, serving as a witness to peace What what we see is some of the um, the effects of service members who um, have been uh, trained to go into combat, who experience combat, who um, combat
2: mm-hmm.
6: um, um, some of them are just like uh, shaken. Um, by that. So um, our focus, particularly, is are, are those service members, men and women, mm-hmm. who come to us kind of shaken and in need of help.
1: Mm-hmm. I want to ask a little bit about this, uh, the GI Rights Hotline, because I know that it can be, it's an, an opportunity for soldiers to talk about harassment that they might uh, be experiencing, to talk about what their rights might be. And I kind of want to, I, I want to get to what a closed system our armed forces actually is, right? If you're being sexually harassed, that those reports go inside the system. If you are going to seek medical care, that is available to you inside this system. You know, if you need housing, a lot of times that's inside the system. And it is nice that, you know, you, you have a, a system set up that serves service members, but also that you are kind of trapped inside. And so I want to ask, I'll toss this to you, Lenore. I want to ask what you hear uh, from people who are calling this GI rights hotline and what reservations they might have about, for example, uh, reporting abuse or reporting sexual harassment by by a commander and why perhaps the the systems, uh, the procedures in place inside our our armed forces aren't adequate.
7: So um, we the GI Rights Hotline has been around since 1995, and it's staffed by Quaker House and other organizations around the country. And one of the great things about it is that we are on the outside and are able to you know, reach people in the military are able to reach out to us to get some help. Mm-hmm. For exactly the reason you're mentioning, I mean, medical care, um, reporting military sexual trauma, um, seeking... Uh, Lots of different kinds of support, uh, mental health support, those things sometimes do fall short in the military, and we can help them understand their rights within the military system, but also reach to the outside when they need help with with outside doctors, outside therapists, um, even on occasion, you know, support for domestic abuse or sexual violence, Um the reason it happens, I think, I mean, I think, you know, everything in the military is geared towards the mission. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, what we see in the medical system is that there's a conflict of interest between serving the individual and their needs, but also serving this larger mission of, you know, fighting wars and um, that the military is assigned to. So sometimes that, that, the medical profession uh, I think falls short because they 're thinking more about the larger mission and not so much about the individual mm-hmm.
1: I, It would also seem to have a very isolating effect and I, I wanted to bring you in, Stephen, and, and talk about that again when when everything that you are doing is happening within this closed system, uh, the people who are members of the armed forces are really isolated from the nation that they are supposed to be protecting or serving. And I imagine that this must, you know, at some point become uh, either just a, a source of stress or a source of real alienation. And I, I wonder if that is something that you hear from from some of the people who you speak to who are struggling with their service, or who, who are calling this GI rights hotline.
8: Right. Well, I I don't want to, like, put all of our calls in the same category, but there are certainly people who call us up who have tried to get help, for instance, in the military medical system
2: Uh
8: and haven't gotten help, haven't gotten recognized for their conditions. And when you talk about it being an internal system, one of the effects that has is people get discouraged and give up. They they feel like I've got to somehow work out my problems on my own because I'm not going to get any help there or things like that. So a lot of people do give up, and that can be hard in that a command is going to expect you to perform your duties in the way you would have when you were healthy. And if you have an undiagnosed condition, there's nothing telling that command to expect something different from you. There's nothing sort of covering you or recognizing that you should have limitations. And so... Sometimes people find themselves getting punished for falling short of performing their duties when in fact there's a medical limitation or medical condition that's causing them to not be able to perform like they should be. And we certainly get callers who are – you know, they're wanting to get on a track of how do I get recognized, how do I get treatment, how do I get considered by the disability system for these injuries I have. And sometimes they're facing commands that are, let's run this person out for misconduct because they're not meeting expectations. And so there can certainly be a gap between what's really going on medically and what the command recognizes as going on.
0: Yeah, I could see that. Um- I wanted to ask uh, Steve, let's talk in a broader sense for, for a minute about the pressures that so many of our soldiers uh, are under. Many of them are poor, and they see the military as their only way out of poverty. We've seen that for generations, really. They're sent into combat. They're psychologically unprepared. Um, they come back damaged and in need of help. And that help is oftentimes just not readily available not from the Veterans Administration, not from the, the services themselves. Tell us what they can expect from the military or what they should expect from the military and what Quaker House can do for them.
8: Well, <laughs> in terms of what someone should expect, I mean, the, what's advertised is when you join the military, we're going to provide you with health care. I think, I think a reality is when human beings go into highly stressful situations and traumatic situations, that's going to play out very differently from person to person. Some people might come out of that without a lot of complications and other people are going to have really serious issues, PTSD and anxiety and distress and all kinds of other things and suicidal tendencies. And what's even more complicated is some people look okay at first. And then those issues start to arise later. That's just kind of, I mean, I'm not a medical professional, but I talk to them and that's kind of how these things unfold for people. So when you say what should people expect, they're supposed to get healthcare, they're supposed to be accommodations, they're supposed to be a disability system to compensate for their inability to work and things like that. Um, Sometimes that works for people and sometimes it doesn't. And so when people are calling us, we're looking at where they are in that spectrum of, you know, where, where they are in that place, what's going on with them, and just trying to, you know, on a case-by-case basis, get everyone the most help and support they can get. Some people want to stay in the military, and a an lot of people who are calling us in situations like that want to get out, but want to get out in a good way where they're getting the benefits they should be getting, you know, the support they should be getting, and things like that. So it's. I mean, it's kind of a case-by-case matching what that person's needs and goals are to what tools and resources we can give them to help them get what they're after.
0: Lenore, um, when you're counseling some of these young men and women, what issues are weighing most heavily on their minds? What are the greatest pressures?
7: So some of the things that we see happening are people with very serious medical conditions and mental health conditions are diagnosed with lesser conditions that deprive them of disability benefits. We also sometimes see people separated for misconduct when they should be treated through medical channels because their medical condition is impacting their ability to perform, but it hasn't been diagnosed properly and they're not getting treated, and so it looks to the command like misconduct. Um other people are changed by their experiences uh, in a combat situation and realize that they don't want to participate in war and that it's against their moral or religious relief, beliefs. So we work with them to apply for conscientious objection. So there's a whole range of issues and we we try to help people get proper diagnosis. Um, we try to help people understand their rights within the disability evaluation system and with conscientious objectors, um, we work for months with them to submit their application and to, um, be recognized as a CO. Um, so there's a lot of different ways in which we we work with them. And the isolation that we were talking about earlier does really happen. In all these cases, I think that there is a risk that the soldier will feel ostracized or isolated by their commands, abandoned. Um, and so we're there to remind them that this isn't their fault, that they're dealing with the, you know, the fallout of what they were asked to do and, and try to support them and reconnect them with a larger society that recognizes that this, these, you know, that they need help and that they deserve good care and support.
0: Kurt, uh, Quaker House has been around for a long time. Uh, and you're, you're based in Arguably, one of the most military cities uh, in the in the continental U.S. What's the what's the community environment like? Has the community been supportive of the work that Quaker House has done over the course of all these years?
6: Um, I would say yes. Um, I think Quaker House has has made a, a commitment since its beginning to be part of the community um, and um, dealing with issues that are relevant to the community to help the, uh, help the community heal. In some cases, uh, there were some uh, racial issues a number of years ago, and, and uh, Quaker House helped sponsor some uh, uh, training anti-racism. Uh, we've done alternative to violence projects. Um, they have a, a very small but devoted, if you will, um, Fayetteville Friends meeting, Quaker meeting, they're supportive. They they don't recognize that, that the service members are... Um, well, the, the service members are just like us. They're human beings. Right. So there's not that, that, uh, that um, um, se- separation, I think. Um, uh, so, uh, and, and Quaker House is committed. I, you know, I think also that, uh, in uh, summarizing some of the things that Steve Lenore said, is that for many times Quaker House is, is an outlet for these people or a safety net that they wouldn't or- ordinarily have. And, and our services are free. We, we don't charge people. We don't expect anything in return. If somebody has a success, we don't expect them to be in touch with us for years and profit from that. You know, our, our role is to be there for, for them and to heal them and, and um, uh, let them move on.
0: Okay. And what can people do to get involved with Quaker House and to get involved in the work that you do, especially if, if they're not local?
6: Sure. Um, um, go to our website, quakerhouse.org. That's one word, QuakerHouse.org. Learn about our work and mission. Um, get on our mailing list so we can send information out. Sometimes uh, Quaker House, by being in Fayetteville, um, uh, his, um, knows a little bit more about what's going on with the military. Um, uh, of course, but donations always help. Uh, that's, that's our lifeline. Um, we've, we've been uncovering things like, um, moral injury. That's also been very helpful to the community. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, uh, go to our website. Mm
0: -hmm. Good idea. Well, thank you to Lenore Yarger, Steve Wolford, and, um, Kurt Kurt Terrell. Sorry, (laughs) Kurt. I, I blanked for a second. Representatives of Quaker House located outside Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Thanks for joining us.
6: Domestic Violence Program. And that's an issue that we didn't address. And that's. Um,
0: oh, that's that's a good point. Can you repeat that?
6: The Domestic Violence and Military Program. And it will be on our website.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. I'm glad you said that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll definitely take note. And I hope that our listeners do as well.
1: Yeah. Thanks to all of you for joining us. We're going to slide a few last headlines in here. Now, I, this one caught my eye earlier, John. Uh, the first. Person who's been arrested—the first SAS arrest—person arrested in the aftermath of the Australian war crimes report. Yeah.
0: That this has forgetting. been bubbling along for for quite a while. Yeah, now.
1: and I remember reading about it, and I cannot remember if we've talked about it on the show I, I very much. Have. But Aust- I think I feel like it might have come up just briefly. But yeah, reports of like really awful. Uh, war crimes committed by Australians in Afghanistan, kinds of things along the lines of, you know, doing violence as a sort of initiation into the group. And so say retired Sergeant Major Peter O'Connell has been the first person arrested after uh, that report came to light and then, you know, was made a big splash in the media.
0: That's a big deal. It's not something that you read very frequently that the United States does.
1: no. (laughs) No, certainly not. Also, this was just very sad, John. Uh, there was a a crash, uh, an air crash in May of 2016. It was an Egypt Air flight that was traveling from Paris to Cairo. It fell out of the sky between Crete and northern Egypt, and it seems like this is France's Bureau of Inquiry and Analysis for Civil Aviation Safety. They have concluded that a smoke break by the pilot, led to a fire that ended up leading to this crash. And I'm looking at this. This is, of course, a story in the New York Post. There's a picture of the pilot up there. And I'm thinking on one hand, man, that is really sad. I I feel bad for his loved ones that this man's, you know, photo is being displayed as the cause of all these deaths of these people. Then on the other hand, you know, if you do something so reckless as to smoke in the middle of your flight, maybe that is what you get. And then I saw, at least according to this story, that pilots were allowed to smoke. So it's not like he,
0: b- he was broke sneaking it. A rule or was right. sneaking
1: it or something. He was allowed to have a smoke break in and the cockpit. In
0: the cockpit, and there was an oxygen leak mm-hmm. from a faulty oxygen mask in the cockpit. I guess the match or an ash or whatever ignited the oxygen, caused a fire in the cockpit. And it went down. You know, I remember this crash very, very well uh, because the Egyptian authorities immediately said it was a terrorist attack. And I mean, it was impossible to come to a conclusion like that because the crash had just happened. Right. And they said, well, some of the bodies had explosive residue on them. Well, you haven't examined any of the bodies. Mm -hmm. So immediately there was an issue. With the cause of this crash, the the French have been investigating it now for six years and they've been able to finally piece together exactly what happened.
1: Also, I mean, you you will be relieved to know that uh, the rule allowing pilots to smoke in the cockpit has been changed since 2016. When this crash occurred. Also, a, a pretty significant bit of news that we didn't get to early on in the show, uh, but that Russia has said it is no longer sending shipments of natural gas to Poland and Bulgaria. Right. This is being described by the EU as blackmail. Yes. Although what seems to have happened is that Russia has said, "Here, here is the way, here is a way for you to pay us. Here is how we will accept payment. And Poland and Bulgaria have said, well, we're not going to pay you that way.
0: Right. It's it's actually quite straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russians want to be paid in rubles because of the international sanctions that have been placed on them. What um, a country can do is go to I think it's Gazprom, Gazprom Bank. Gazprom Bank, yeah. Pay it to Gazprom Bank. Pay it in whatever currency you want. It's converted to rubles there, and then the rubles are sent uh, to the uh, back to Russia. Right. Well, what the European Union wanted, what Poland and Bulgaria wanted, is to pay the Russians in euros, have the euros transferred to an escrow account where the Russians wouldn't have access to it. Yeah. And then they get the what amounts to free gas. Yeah. And the Russians said that doesn't make any kind of sense. That's not a sale. Right. Mm -hmm. If I give you something and I get nothing in return for it, that's not a sale. Mm -hmm. You know, the Russians might as well have said, sure, you put the money into an escrow account. We'll put the, the gas into a tank, and when this war's over right. and the sanctions are we lifted, also, then we can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, we'll get our money and you can I mean, the gas. reality
1: is r- Russian oil and gas has been flowing to Europe steadily, right? It, as we spoke about earlier, uh, either last week or just yesterday on the show, uh, shipments have actually increased. It's just their transparency has decreased. So other countries have found found a way to make these payments, have found a way to uh, comply with this request that Russia be paid in currency that it can access for the resources it's providing. So, I mean, yeah, they have stopped sending shipments to Poland and Bulgaria, Uh, whether it is accurate to call this blackmail. And not as Garland Nixon said, breaking news, Russia declines to send natural gas for free. I mean, it's tongue
0: in cheek, but like, yeah, that's. And how much do you want to bet that this problem is uh, solved in the next week or two? I mean, who uh, yeah, $5? <laughs> five dollars, five dollars. We
1: t- we check back in and the problem solved next week. Yep, That's about all we have time for. You can find out next week. If I'm going to be collecting from John or he's going to be collecting from me. In the meantime, thanks to the engineers and producers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.